0: Good morning. Read with me from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. They, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid.
1: This morning we're in Mark chapter 16. I do hope you have your Bibles open. You'll keep them open with, with us as we look at this passage that is a sudden ending. A sudden ending to the book of Mark. We'll need a little bit of information to know why I would call it that. This morning we enter the this last chapter. It's been a long road that we've been on with Jesus. And this ending of the gospel of Mark presents us with one of the most complicated and unresolved questions about the original manuscript of the Bible. In, in most of your translations you probably see a little note there after verse 8. And in most translations, there's something like this. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Now, that's weird. I remember where I was sitting when I was in a service and the preacher was preaching on this passage, and I read that and I thought, that's weird. I don't know what that means. Well, here I am, some 35, 40 years later, and uh, I'm still thinking, that's weird. And I'm not sure exactly what that means. So let's preach it, right? Uh, and before I say anything else, I do have to admit, I'm, I'm just not an expert in this area of study. We all make decisions about where we put our time, and this is just not a place where I've just put an, an inordinate amount of time of study in my life. And honestly, I think that's what it would take to understand what in the world that little phrase means in there. So what I have had to do is what many of us have to do when we find ourselves at a loss is to Lean on those that we have come to trust in other areas to understand the early manuscripts of the Bible and, and those who, who do so far better than I do. One of those commentators gave this illustration. It's an illustration of a yardstick. You know a yardstick? Can, you all can give a definition of it. Everybody knows what a yard is, three feet, right? I mean, but what's a foot? Well, it's 12 inches, of course. Well, but what's an inch? Oh, man. And all of a sudden, we're, we're like, oh, I, I, mean, I mean, I know exactly what it is, but what actually is it? And it's, it's an interesting question with a great deal of history to it. Actually, back in 1758, there was a physical representation of the standard yardstick that was deposited in the House of Commons in England. And that is the standard for what a yard actually is in England. Now, Let's just say that the House of Commons burned to the ground along with the standard yardstick. It was lost forever. Now the question for us is then, have we now, with the losing of the standard, the original, right, have we lost all sense of what a yard is? Do we no longer know how long a yard is, how long a foot is, how long an inch is? Now, one of the things that we could do was we could gather together a collection of all the yardsticks from every schoolhouse and every factory in the land. And though some would have some shaved ends, you guys have seen yardsticks in schoolhouses, right? They've been used more for canes than anything, you know? And they've got some shaved ends, ends on the end, and, and some are just poorly manufactured. And we could quickly discount those ones as erroneous measures, and that they're clearly out of form, Right? Now, others would conform to one another, and we would reconstruct through a relatively conventional set of reasoning and with a high degree of certainty just how long the standard yard is. Now, here's the problem with the Gospel of Mark, is that along the way there appear to have been a variety of additions that have been made to the end of the yardstick. And then copies of those varieties of additions with their variety of additions to the end of the yardstick have been made. And then, as those multiple copies of various endings at various relatively early dates have been made, we have these additions uh, of Mark that are collected, and the yardsticks don't really come in at the same sort of measure. We're not sure exactly how many verses, so to speak, to put in. The Gospel of Mark. It's almost as if there are three different editions of the standard Mark that made their way into circulation. What appears at the end of uh, most translations is what is known as the long ending. And it seems like this is the first of three possibilities. A long ending. And yet it appears in most translations with this note of caution. That it's not the long ending that is found that it, in most of the early manuscripts. The second option is that there's actually a short ending, and this one is probably the most discounted, that there's basically about a paragraph long ending after verse 8. And then many of the earliest manuscripts simply end at verse 8. And these seem to be the three sort of sets of copies that are made that then we, when we pull them together, we're like, I'm not sure which of these Uh, really conforms to the standard yard, so to speak. There have been been a few times in the Gospel of Mark that we've encountered a a difficult interpretation or an important question in the Scripture. Each time we've sought counsel from commentators, and and I know I've sought counsel from fellow pastors. And one commentator that I've found to be particularly helpful, you've heard me mention him a number of times, his name is R.T. France. Uh, He offers Three basic categories for options for how to understand what we're dealing with here at the end of the Gospel of Mark. The first is this. One of these various extended endings represents the original manuscript of the Gospel author. So one of these options, this extended ending that we have in most of our translations, or maybe the, the extended endings that is the shorter version, represents what j- the gospel writer Mark originally had for us. The second option is that the original manuscript of Mark ends at verse 8. And then uh, it, it's, it's abrupt... Fails to give us what we would deem maybe some essential content that we would expect to happen post resurrection ministry of jesus, but that 's where he intends it to end, and then the third option is it 's intended to end in a sort of uh, of irony. Uh, But as Archie's France puts it, for me, the abruptness of the ending consists not primarily in the stylistic form of its final sentence, but in the unfinished nature of its contents. What he's saying is there are things that we would expect if we've been following along with Mark that we would would sort of expect for Mark to have said, things that he's even sort of foreshadowed and set up but never actually given the conclusion regarding. Particularly one of those is he's begun to mention these three women and to prepare them and set them up as witnesses. And then they don't wind up actually witnessing. They wind up running away afraid. And so the third option is that there is some ending intended for the gospel of Mark that either Mark was unable to write for some reason not the first time in history that someone has gotten to a particular place in a project and then the letter wound up being sent incomplete, or that at a very early date, that original ending was essentially a lost part of the manuscript. Now, the absolute majority of commentaries take one of the last two positions, uh, that either it ends at verse 8 or that there is some lost original Ending. After reading numerous summaries of those arguments, I find myself personally in agreement, though my salvation is not staked on whether or not I've figured out how to handle the end of the Gospel of Mark. My salvation finds its stake in the Gospel that the Gospel of Mark and the rest of the Scriptures gives testimony to. So let me summarize it this way What we have at the end of Mark is an attempt by an early scribe to add an editorialized ending to the gospel of Mark. It's either an effort to recover an ending that's lost to us, but maybe existed still in an oral tradition, or it adds details perhaps from other gospels or adds details that were common knowledge about Jesus. There's nothing particularly controversial in these last verses of the gospel of Mark that we don't know of from other gospels or perhaps from acts. The good news is most of what we have come to believe is an editorialized extended ending of the gospel of Mark is in faithful alignment to what we have elsewhere in scripture. I think of it this way. I've got kids. They're getting a little bit older now, but when they were young, we had our favorite children's books, and and we would come and we would read them a lot, and as more we would read them, sometimes some of the pages would fall out. Thank God this is not, I mean, look at this book. It's huge. And really, either none or almost no pages have fallen out over the course of millennia. This is a miraculous work of God to preserve the Scriptures for us with a great deal of certainty and confidence. And yet, here we are at the end of the Gospel of Mark, and I feel myself feeling something like when I was reading those children's books to my kids, and I would get to a point where the last couple pages have fallen out, and I would simply just finish the story real quickly and get them to bed, you know? Because I know how the story ends. And that's what I feel like this last part of Mark sounds like. An editor saying, I want to tell you how it ends. And he wraps it up with a short series of events. Now, here we are, about 10 minutes into the message. Why are we spending so much time on this? We have one last week in the Gospel of Mark. Next week, when we're going to again consider a little bit of this, as well as go back and do a summary of what we've learned together. I mentioned this today because verse 8 is such an abrupt ending. Now, that's not actually a problem for us. The Acts also ends with a relatively abrupt ending. I think that the theory that there is some ending to the gospel of Mark that's intended to be there, but he either didn't get a chance to write or was lost at a later, a really very early date, helps us to understand the scripture that is before us. So let's turn to the inspired word that we can have confidence. The Lord has spoken the truth that is borne witnessed to this morning. And the first thing that we see in the Gospel of Mark, beginning in chapter 16, verse 1, is the women who again stand as witnesses. Look at verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. That is, Jesus, who was buried in this tomb secured by Joseph of Arimathea. Mark's repeated mentioning of these female disciples of Jesus here at the end of the gospel. Repeated. If you've been with us in recent weeks, you've seen that he keeps mentioning, and particularly this is the second time, he's mentioned these three together. He seems to be setting these three women up as good, trustworthy witnesses, not only of the resurrection, but also of the crucifixion, and really the whole of the ministry, as it says that these women went up with him since his ministry in Galilee. He's setting them up as witnesses, and so it seems odd to me that he has them fleeing in fear in verse 8. It seems like he would say, they fled in fear, they went to Galilee, and buoyed their confidence, and went in and told the disciples and Jesus came, right? Kind of like what we have at the end of the gospel of Matthew. At the crucifixion, we have these women in chapter 15 verse 40. It says this, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. We have these three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of these two Men and Salome, and in our passage today, we seem to, to go, they, they go to the tomb to anoint Jesus. Here they are, again, faithful. All the disciples scattered, and here they are, faithful. Yes, at a distance, at the crucifixion, and now boldly drawing near to the throne, or to the, to the tomb. Now, what's interesting is that this is not the first woman in the Scriptures that has gone to anoint Jesus. You guys remember? Just a few weeks ago, Mark chapter 14, verses 6 through 9, a woman with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, pours it over Jesus' head while he's staying in Bethany. And here's what Jesus says about her. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you Always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Man, he's spoken of these things so clearly. And truly I say to you, he tells them, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And so it is. Here we are, 2,000 years later, remembering the anointing of this woman preparing Jesus for burial. And now we also have these three other women who go to do much the same thing after the crucifixion. We ask, why why did they come to anoint Jesus' body when he'd, he'd already so many times told them, though, that he wouldn't be there? You can only anoint Jesus for burial beforehand because he's not gonna be in the tomb long. He said this clearly numerous times. Mark chapter eight, verse 31. Here we are again. I feel like we quote this every Sunday together. Mark chapter eight, verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He's been clear and repetitive in sharing that story with them. Jesus has testified about himself that he'll rise. And this account settles it for us. All the disciples scatter. One betrayed Jesus. Another denied him with curses. And even these women who are faithful to attend to Jesus, even they, in this act of of love and devotion, or actually expressing unbelief. He's not going to be there. He said so. He's he's not going to need these spices. His body would not need to be prepared for a long stay in the tomb. Now, in verse 2, we have a really important point. And it's an important point that actually Mark says a few different ways. And he sets up for us, and then he says it very clearly in verse 2. Look at it with me. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen right about dawn there, they went to the tomb. When did they go? Uh, Early in the morning, on the first day. Mark is very specific about his language, about timing. He's not only telling us that the women came after the Sabbath had passed, but that they came early in the morning on the first day of the week. That is Sunday morning. We've already spoken about this in the call to worship this morning. This is the first day of a new day. It's right that it would become a new marker for the people of God to mark the work of God, that that we would have a new standard, a new measure, a new rule to mark our lives week after week, the standard, the measure, and the rule of the first day. Why? Resurrection. Consider these three scriptures, and among others, Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when they were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked to them, intending to depart the next day. He prolonged his speech until midnight. I'm going to try and keep it a little bit shorter than that this morning, but I'm warning you, it was a long introduction. All right. The church gathered on the first day of the week, presumably in this passage, to celebrate a communion meal. First Corinthians chapter 16, verse two. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Paul is instructing the church in Corinth to make a collection for the church in Jerusalem who's struggling under persecution. And the question is, when would they do this? How would they order their collection? Well, at their regular gathering, of course, on the first day of the week. And then we have something remarkable that happens by the time we get to Revelation, chapter 1, verse 10. The Apostle John, speaking about how the book of Revelation came to pass, he says, I was in the Spirit when? On the Lord's day. That's a technical term. That's a special phrase. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. By the time the book of Revelation was written at a relatively late date as, as compared to the rest of the scriptures and the rest of the New Testament, the Apostle John is already referring to the first day of the week by a specific title, the Lord's Day. What day is it? It turns out it's not Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. We gather as his people to remember that we are a people made alive by resurrection, by resurrection. The first day of the week, Resurrection Sunday, is the Lord's Day. It's a, it's a sort of liturgical marker for our Christian celebration and for the ordering of our lives. It's not shopping day. It's not grocery day. It's not getting ready for the weekday. It's not finish your homework day. Do you see what I mean? Now, I don't know which of those things you do on this day or which of those things you should not do on this day, but I do know that this is the Lord's Day, and this we should remember. This is how we should order our lives. We gather because he who was crucified has been risen. Now, the testimony that we have before us is a testimony about a stone, a tomb, and a young man, right? The story continues in verse 3. Look at it with me. Verses 3 through 5. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And they were looking, and they Saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb where the stone should have been, they saw a young man sitting on the right hand, a right side, dressed in white robe, and they were alarmed, as you would expect. Everything in this scene is unexpected, unprepared for, even supernatural. They'd gotten all the spices together, they'd made all the preparations for that morning to anoint the body of Jesus, but they'd failed at this point. They, they forgot about the stone in front of the tomb, the very large stone, and they became concerned. We've got everything that we need to anoint the body, we're all ready to take care of and honor this master that we followed, but what about the stone? And they get there, and it's rolled away from the entrance. They thought maybe a passerby would help them, but they didn't need the aid because there was already someone in the tomb. More importantly, there was already someone who was not in the tomb. They climb inside the tomb, and what they find is even more shocking than entering to the face of the tomb and finding the stone rolled away. They walk inside the tomb, and they find a young man seated. Now that's an important little phrase, we've seen it about Jesus, we've seen it in a few different places, the, the, the posture of remaining seated and then beginning to speak is actually a posture of authority. And so whatever this man says, he's saying from a position of authority, seated, and he's wearing white in a dark room. I call to mind the transfiguration, right? Where Jesus' clothes became bright white like nothing that the disciples had ever seen. And so is true of this man in this tomb. And the women were alarmed, as they should be. The presence of the young man, even his garments, is shocking to the women. But it's as we hear him speak that we begin to recognize this isn't just a young man, is it? This is an angelic messenger from the Lord, seated with an authoritative word to give them about the Christ and to give them instruction about where they are to go. He speaks with the divine authority of the Lord. In verse six, he gives the authoritative message about the resurrection. He's not here. He who was a crucified, isn't here. In verse seven, he gives an authoritative command to go and tell. So he gives proclamation and he gives command and instruction. From the beginning of Jesus' life through the resurrection day, the Father has sent messengers on behalf of the Son. Whether it's John the Baptist or angels or a gathering of disciples who would go as his witnesses, to this day in this tomb, the Father is announcing and proclaiming and giving instructions regarding the Son. And today's announcement is the greatest announcement of them all. He's announced before that the Messiah is coming, the one who would save. And today this angel gets to announce, ah, he's risen. This announcement is victory. Verse six. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Such an important little phrase. He is risen. He is not here. See, the place where they laid him, You seek Jesus who was crucified. It's such an important way of making the announcement. It's the way that the announcement is made in the heavenly places as well, right? The lion-like lamb, looking as though he was slain, is alive on the throne, right? Him who was crucified is alive. I mentioned that the resurrection is central to our story. It's central to our liturgy. We gather to celebrate and remember the gospel on Sunday morning, the Lord's day. But the symbol of our gathering is the cross, isn't it? We're, We're not named like tomb point, you know? We're not named like resurrection point, although, I don't know, it wouldn't be too bad. But we are named cross point. Because the cross is so much of the focus of our attention and the ground of our hope. It was on the cross that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, for souls like mine. But it's the angelic messenger who links the true great realities for us. We gather on the day of resurrection to celebrate him who was crucified. Do you see? We're cross point and we we become this Beautiful gathering of people pointing our way to the cross when we gather to remember that him who was crucified is raised. These are the twin realities and the hope of our faith. We gather not merely in the memory of Jesus. This is not a memorial service. We gather in the presence of Jesus. We gather not just by a call to gather and remember him and worship him in memory of him. We gather because he's called us, because he's here first. He's the one that calls the gathering. And he says, Come and gather in my presence. And we gather as his congregation. Man, that changes everything. We just let that in. Infect the reality of your thought processes about what in the world it is that we're doing this morning, gathering in the presence of the Lord. He's risen. He's not here. He's not in this tomb any longer. He's gone to be with his disciples. This is where he is, with his disciples. He tells them, see The angel tells the woman, you can see the place where he was. And if you go to the disciples in Galilee quickly, you're going to see him there now. There's a place that he was, and there's a place that he is. He was the crucified Christ in the tomb. He really was dead. We know that by testimony through multiple means. But now he is the one who is alive Gone to be with his disciples. Jesus is more than just risen in some spiritual sense that's supposed to affect the way that we feel about our lives. Jesus is actually risen. He's actually alive. He's actually present with his disciples. We've covered the entire Gospel of Mark in just over a year. This is our 60th message in the Gospel of Mark. And from Jesus' baptism in chapter one to his call of the disciples, his teaching and his miracles, his preparation of the disciples for his betrayal, his death, and his resurrection, we've seen Jesus brutally beaten. We've seen him murdered on a cross, high and lifted up for all to see. And we have, by Jesus' own testimony about himself, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so it was. And now, this Jesus, that according to his own testimony, who has given his life as a ransom for many, is now risen. This is the stunning stamp of success on Jesus' entire endeavor. The ransom, it worked. It was delivered. Forgiveness is secure. Grace is there to be dispensed by the Godhead for the people that we might be rescued. Our souls are secure. The Lord has won the victory. It is finished. He is risen. And that's why the women are told this go and tell. You see, what we have because of the work of the gospel, that is the work of the Christ, We don't work the gospel. We don't work out the gospel. We aren't the gospel. The gospel is not our lives. Jesus is the good news, and Jesus has done the good news. We go and tell the good news. After I am raised up, in Mark chapter 14, Jesus says, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus didn't just say he was going to rise. He told him what he was going to do. So that when the angels tell the women, When the angel tells the women this, he's just repeating what Jesus had said. This is the way it was going to be. After I raise up, I'm going to go before you to Galilee. So hurry up, tell the disciples. Yeah, things are in motion. The story of the Gospel of Mark is not merely a story about Jesus. This is powerful for us. It's thoroughly a story about Jesus and his disciples. It's one of the things that I've found most shocking about this story. This story is about Jesus' little church, little gathering, a few disciples. He's been gathering his disciples. He's been gathering these seedling version of his church since the beginning of the gospel, calling them by name and gathering them as his people. And even the angel sounds the note that Peter, who seems like he's lost, right, He's gone out with curses. And the angel sounds the note that even this one who was denied Jesus just days before will be restored to the fellowship. Jesus is gathering his church. Even he is continuing the work of making and applying the gospel that he has secured for his church. He's secured the gospel, and now he's gone to Galilee to apply that good news to his little church. Jesus is gathering his church and he will not cease to gather his church. The resurrection is the final act of Jesus by which he will take this tiny band and he's gonna send them to the corners of the earth, to all the world. I have a friend who lived near me in the early, early days of Cross Point Coast, ten years ago, and he'd often ask me this little, little phrase. He'd say, "So, how's your little church?" I'm like that kind of feels kind of funny. I feel like we're doing all right, but whatever, <laughs> you know. <laughs> how's your little church? But o- along the way, I'm like, oh, "That's actually really sweet. It's not just sweet; it's true, right? We're just a little church, just a little church, and just like Jesus' little band of disciples, and they're not secured by my work." The church doesn't grow in number or faithful in proclamation or grounded in the gospel because of any pastor or elder or laborer in the midst of the church. We are the little church, secure and faithful because the Lord has secured us. And he's gone to us and he's still present with us. We are his little church. Man, I wouldn't want to be anything else than among a little band with a master who's risen which makes verse eight so complicated, all right? If you're just making up a story, you don't write verse eight, unless it's true. Look at it. Verse eight says this, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. Now that's, I'm totally with that. I Totally get that, all right? And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. What's that about? It's like the end of the story. Well, they said nothing to anyone, and everybody died out, and there was no Christianity, right? There was no one to tell, but the Lord isn't finished. The buildup to the witness of these women to the resurrection is more than anticlimactic. It seems just straight up incomplete. He's been foreshadowing a telling and a regathering and a going and proclaiming according to a commissioning for chapters now, but it's also very real. We know that verse 8 is not the final word. Even in this, like I said, I think it's probably an editorialized sort of quick wrapping up of what we know to be true elsewhere, but we know that verse 8 is not the final word. We know that the disciples were told. We know that the Lord did encounter them. We know that He did gather His disciples and He did give them a commission and they did go. And the gospel of, or the, the, the book of Acts is a telling of the Spirit's work and the multiplication of the word as it multiplies and increases into all the places the Lord would send His church as He blesses them and He keeps them. But there's a powerful contrast here. Jesus rose bold from the grave and immediately went about the business of gathering his church. Early in the morning, Jesus walked out that tomb. And he went immediately to Galilee to go and gather his church. But his disciples fled. The remaining 11, whom Jesus had called, fled back to Galilee. And these women fled from the tomb. The church is throughout. Go back and read the whole thing again this week. It's not so long that you can't do that. Go back and read the Gospel of Mark and you will see a fearful, bumbling group, often gripped by fear and unbelief. This is a fitting conclusion to the way the disciples are. Man, I wonder if that's ever changed. Or is this not kind of our story? But the Lord is faithful He takes whatever faith remains, and really there's nothing to work with here, and he strengthens his people. It's the Lord who will build his church, and he sends us with his spirit and with his word in such a way that with his presence with his people, not even the gates of hell will prevail against the testimony of Christ's bumbling fearful church. He's the great proclaimer. One of the, when we define the gospel here at Crosspoint Coast, we, the, the, the beginning of our, our little definition, and there's a number of ways that you could define the gospel, of a number of scriptures that you could go to that puts it powerfully. But one of the places that we go to is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and one of the things we get from that is the gospel is, first of all, the proclamation of God. It's not only the proclamation about God, The gospel is the proclamation by God. He is the first, ultimate, sustaining proclaimer at all times. All we're trying to do is occasionally repeat him correctly. Even when we showed up here in Brevard County 10 years ago to come alongside of the other churches that were already faithful in the midst of this county, our goal was actually not to plant a church. Now, we kind of wanted that to happen. But our goal was to plant the gospel. Our goal was to make known the truth. And we believe that where the truth is known, God will plant his church. Oh, he'll grow it up. According to his own work, according to his own spirit, according to his own word. Friends, there's a few things that we can observe from the end of this passage These women loved Jesus. We should just pause it. They didn't get it right. In fact, they got it dead wrong. Faithlessly wrong. Why are you going to anoint someone who said he would not be there? But They they, they did love Jesus. Even if they truly failed to truly understand and believe, they expected to find the body of Jesus who was crucified. Not an angelic announcement that the tomb is empty, but they loved Jesus. Jesus you can't go too wrong there and then the Lord will change you he won't leave you in your error he's not going to leave you in your unbelief he's going to work by his word and he's going to work by his spirit to change a people Uh, I love what uh, R.C. Sproul says about a believer how do you know you're saved he says well the way that you know that you're saved is if you love Jesus at all but Jesus, as he is actually according to his word, because by nature, we're children of wrath and prone to wander off after love of self and love of the world. If you love Jesus at all, that's a miracle. It's a miracle of his word and spirit. If you love him at all, man, he's gonna cause his work to be complete in you at the day of Christ Jesus. Oh, make no mistake. Man, that's, that's my hope. It's a gift of grace ought to fill up our song, Jesus, that I love you at all. Bring it to completion. Cause me to be even just a little bit like these bumbling women and these bumbling disciples. Another question for us is where is Jesus? Where is he? Well, he's risen. I can tell you where he's not for sure. Like so much so that you can point and say, See? He's not there, not in the tomb, not where you can put spices on him and so he could stay there for a long time and not stink, right? No, he's not. he's not there. He's risen. And we ought to have a realistic view of the physical location of Jesus. When the young man said, Jesus is in Galilee... It would have been an incorrect response for the women, though it sounds like a wonderful Sunday school answer, for the women to say, we know because Jesus is everywhere. No, no, he's in Galilee, like where you're not listening. Jesus rose, he went out of tomb, and I don't know if he did it miraculously travel or if he just took a nice little walk, but his body was in Galilee that day. The angel wanted these women to think of the risen Jesus as a physical body that made its way to Galilee and was going to be present with the disciples. Now, when they saw him, things were different, all right? We have every indication he appeared to walk through a wall, all right? That's not the sort of thing that we expect a physical body to do, but he really did. He is Jesus, after all. It's not completely wrong to say that Jesus is everywhere, but it's wrong for us to imagine of Jesus of something other than the the man who was born in a manger, who walked in Galilee, made his way to Jerusalem. His body really was pierced and perished on a cross and really did rise physically from a grave. He really did make his way to Galilee. He ate a meal with his disciples on a beach and he ascended to heaven where he is today. Where is Jesus? Jesus is sitting on a throne that like touches his risen flesh. And one of these days, you and I won't have an impression of feeling him. You and I won't float on clouds and be gracious for the light of Jesus. We're gonna see him. On his throne. We're gonna say, that's the lion-like lamb. He looks as though he is slain, but he's alive. And he reigns, and our eyes will see him. That should change the way we walk. We worship an actual king on an actual throne forever. And finally, Jesus restores, and man, with a king who reigns holy, holy, holy from a throne forever, we need to hear that the Lord restores. The resurrection of Jesus is a story of victory. His broken body is restored to life, and this is our story. It's the story of the church that he has lived in our place, that we who were dead in sin and trespasses have been made alive together with Christ. It's in the grace of his sacrifice and the victory of his resurrection that we have been made alive. It's for this reason that the angel can announce that even Peter will see and know Jesus again. The resurrection of our Lord is the ground of our restoration. We look not to the history of our faithfulness, but to his. It's one of the reasons that's central to every one of our testimonies. Have you ever shared your testimony with someone else? you ever tried to pull up an answer for your faith? If your story, if your testimony is all about you and evidence that you have believed, your story has no ground. You see, I don't have faith in my faith. My faith is way too bumbling. I have faith in the resurrected one who keeps me, belong to him. Our story is his faithfulness. His victory has become our victory. So this morning, I think an appropriate question for us to close on is why are we afraid? Why are we afraid? Especially in the light of the resurrection, what do we have to be afraid of? Now, I understand why these women were afraid because it was shocking and new to them. It's not shocking and new to us anymore. It's amazing, but we don't have anything to be afraid of. We have so much more context than these women did on that day. We have 2,000 years of reflection on this, we have the account that is sure in the scriptures that they even themselves played a part in, we ought to be sure. So we ought to have the boldness of the people of Acts in the midst of the church. And so I call you this morning to faith. To faith not in how your week went, not into your performance, not into the sufficiency of your profession or your confession of your sin. This morning I call you to faith in Jesus Christ who died in your place and rose that you might have life in him. For some, this morning, this is a first confession. Praise God. Don't wait a moment longer. The proclamation has come from these women to a group of disciples, to many other disciples who went to the ends of the earth so that it's made its way to your ears today. Believe. Confess and believe. And for those who know this confession, who know that your life is grounded in the death and resurrection of the Lord, Boldness. Don't leave worried. Don't leave astonished, but not afraid. Go with boldness to make known the grace of the gospel to your life. The person you're sitting next to and the person that God brings you into contact this week, you have been sent. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the confidence that we have in Christ because of your gospel. Lord, we thank you that you, it's your gospel, it is your work, it is your grace, it is your faithfulness that we proclaim even in prayer before you that gives us our confidence. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would embolden your church, that you would embolden us first for worship, also for confession, and also for proclamation. I pray that Brevard County would hear, friends and neighbors would hear. Not our testimony, but the testimony that we have come to bear that your story is ours. Thank you, Jesus. This is good news, rightly gospel, for your people this morning. We pray this in Jesus, the resurrected, risen Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, pray. amen.